Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in us in only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation, and instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Grace. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. And today's program is a collaborative um, effort between the Leukemia Research Foundation and uh, Cancer Care. And our, the title of our workshop today is Adults Living with Acute Lymphocytic Leukemia, um, ALL, um, and Treatment Updates. And today's program has been supported by Gilead. And I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have many of you on the call today. There's over 107 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today from Canada and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And it's credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Alexander Pearl. Dr. Pearl is Associate Professor of Medicine, Leukemia Program, Division of Hematology, Oncology, University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. Pearl will be addressing an overview of acute lymphocytic lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL in adults, current standard of care, therapy for relapsed refractory ALL, new treatment approaches, and the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pearl. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks for the nice introduction. Um, as an overview of ALL, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how we understand the disease and, and a little bit about the biology of it. ALL is a blood cancer of immature cells uh, that are called lymphoblasts that normally grow in the bone marrow and then migrate to the lymph nodes where um, they develop in that setting to very specialized white blood cells called lymphocytes and help coordinate immune responses, typically to infections. Um, under normal, stances, normal circumstances, we have just a few lymphoblasts in the bone marrow, maybe one or even 2% of the bone marrow cells are lymphoblasts. And what's different in ALL is that these cells are diseased in a way that increases their growth and increases their survival, and they grow out of control in a way that replaces all the normal blood cells in the bone marrow, which means the bone marrow stops working properly and it stops making adequate numbers of functional blood cells altogether and instead just makes lymphoblasts that lack function uh, and the whole blood system is, is disordered in that setting. And because you need adequate numbers of blood cells every day, the lack of the normal blood cells uh, leads to patients getting sick rapidly. And the speed of going from well to sick can happen really quickly, often over just a few weeks. And there's two major kinds of acute leukemias um, because there's two major kinds of white blood cells. Um, there are uh, kind of two basic groupings of types of white blood cells, either granulocytes or lymphocytes, and so there's two different kinds of acute leukemia, acute granulocytic, or what's called acute myeloid leukemia, and acute lymphocytic, or lymphoblastic leukemia, uh, which we typically call ALL by its uh, its uh, abbreviation. Um, so ALL is, is made up of one of the two kinds of lymphocytic cells, either those that are ultimately trying to become antibody-producing uh, cells, or B cells, um, or cells that are ultimately trying to become the master regulators of the immune system, which are called T cells. And so there's two major kinds of ALL. There's, there's B cell ALL, 
Um, and that's much more common. That's probably about 80% of cases. And there's T-cell ALL, which is only about 20% of cases. Now, in most patients, this disease uh, presents uh, because of symptoms related to not so much the lymphoblasts, but the lack of the normal blood cells. Um, patients who lack white blood cells are more likely to get infections, or they may have fevers for no reason because the white blood cells are trying to coordinate the immune system, and that's not working right. If their hemoglobin is low because the red blood cell counts down or the platelet count is low, um, they can get fatigue from low hemoglobin or bleeding problems because of low platelets. Um, and so these are typically the symptoms that patients present with. And uh, one more thing in terms of just, you know, how often we see uh, ALL, I should have mentioned before, is uh, this is this is a relatively uncommon cancer in adults, but it's actually the most common cancer in children. Uh, so while the numbers of children affected by ALL are overall small, it's it's the most common pediatric cancer. Um, but there's probably about twice as many cases in children as there are in adults. It's relatively uncommon among adult uh, leukemias. There's somewhere around you know 6,000 cases of ALL diagnosed nationally in the U.S. each year. Um, in terms of studying the biology of, of ALL, uh, we've spent a lot of time looking at that, and, and what we've learned from this is that uh, we can group ALL into different groups with the most important case uh, that we pull out is when there's an enzyme uh, that's called BCR-ABLE um, that is activated by a mutation in the leukemia. And, and that's called Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL. So that's an important subset because treatment for that group is different than all other groups with ALL. And to move to treatment, the, the standard of care for treatment of ALL uses chemotherapy, but typically not just one drug, but multiple drugs uh, in combinations. And the reason for multiple drugs comes historically from the discovery, uh, really as far back as the 40s and 50s, that ALL was very sensitive to many different kinds of chemotherapy. Um, and then in the 1960s, that using more than one chemotherapy drug at a time was much more effective at controlling the disease. And by the late 60s and 1970s, these combinations have been worked out into uh, tolerable regimens that could be given for long-term disease control. And ultimately, it was found that if you gave the therapy for long enough, you could stop therapy and a subset of patients would never have a return of their leukemia and were cured. And so this was one of the first cancers that could be cured with multi-agent uh, chemotherapy. And just since that time, the treatment regimens have become more and more and more effective and more patients are becoming cured. Um, let me talk about some of the, the common features of these regimens, which are very complicated and require a really specialized team. So this, this is not typically something that can be managed by an oncologist uh, in a community practice. Generally, it requires input from a dedicated leukemia team and often seeing a specialized center that treats leukemia because these, these regimens can be quite complicated. Uh, they're often very intensive. They may require hospitalization, particularly in the early portions of therapy. And they're often intensive for somewhere in the range of about six months of therapy back-to-back -back without stopping. Um, just one regimen falls into the next regimen with very little breaks. Um, and then after the intensive therapy is given, uh, generally the therapy uh, is not done at that point, but is lowered down to a lower intensity that's given primarily as outpatient with oral therapy for as long as two or three years. And that's called maintenance or, or POMP, which stands for the four drugs that we use. Uh, prednisone, onconvin, uh, methotrexate, or purinthal, um, which are the four drugs that are given for years of treatment. Um, and, and this, we think, is an important part of the, the curative ability of this treatment is to really exhaust the effects of the leukemia to try to grow back despite chemotherapy. Um, 
And much of the data in terms of how best to treat leukemia come from years of clinical trials, as well as collaboration with pediatric centers, in part because uh, pediatric approaches to ALL, uh, basically when it's your most common disease, they've, they've gained a lot of expertise in that area, and their treatment regimens have been very successful. Um, recently, we've used pediatric approaches in more and more patients, particularly the younger uh, adults and adolescents, and tried to match as closely to the pediatric approaches because they've generally been the most successful approaches. And with that approach, we've used less and less uh, bone marrow transplantation, which is good, I think, overall for patients who don't need that level of intensity um, and who are responding adequately. Um, one of the other important areas in treatment of ALL is to assess for response very early on and to take patients who are responding optimally and continue the therapy that's working. But if patients aren't responding optimally to augment that therapy and not wait for a clinical relapse. And so that, that technology is calling looking for what's called measurable residual disease, or MRD. And by adding MRG assessments early into treatment, we have a better sense of who's likely to do well with chemotherapy alone, who needs an augmented approach or an immunotherapeutic approach, and who might need a transplant ultimately. Um, when we look at treatment for your relapse or refractory ALL, we still use chemotherapy, but more and more we're using immunotherapy. And by immunotherapy, there's, there's two kind of major drugs and then one treatment approach that I'll talk about. The immune therapies that have come out include a recently approved drug called inotuzumab, um, which actually is a chemotherapeutic, but it, it, it uses an antibody uh, to infuse the, the, the medication into the patient. The antibody recognizes the tumor cells, it sticks to them, and the tumor cells internalize the antibody within them. And by doing that, uh, kind of you know, glued onto the antibody is a very potent chemotherapeutic that by being internalized within the leukemia cells, delivers very high doses of that chemotherapy drug to the inside of the cells. Because this is antibody targeted, it limits the amount of side effects that we see with the drug. And it's been a very effective way to treat relapsed or refractory ALL. Um, another important immunotherapy has been a drug called linitumumab, which is a little bit different treatment in that it's not chemotherapy at all, and it harnesses the patient's immune system to attack leukemia, but it uses an antibody to turn on the immune system. So the antibody has basically two ends to it, one end to it that recognizes the tumor cells due to the presence of a protein on their surface that's called CD19, and then another that, it, that sticks to the T cells, and again, those are the master regulators of the immune system. So it pulls the, the normal T cells that regulate the immune system to the B cells and tells them this is what you want to attack. And by doing so, it, it leads to an immune clearance of the leukemia without using chemotherapy at all. And in particular for patients who have measurable residual disease after chemotherapy, it can be very effective at controlling their disease. Um, and for patients who need to go on to transplant, it's probably one of the most effective ways to get from, from having either residual disease or relapse disease to a transplant. Because these treatments you know, uh, re work reliably in patients with relapse or refractory disease, um, then we need to do fewer transplants as part of frontline therapy. And if we need to do a transplant for ALL, more commonly we're doing it in patients who, again, either have suboptimal frontline therapy or who have a relapse, and we're getting more and more patients to that treatment um, and, and ultimately curing more people that way. And that, that gets me to a next kind of treatment approach that's really new and exciting, which is using, uh, again, immune therapy, but via genetically modified T cells from the patient, a technology called uh, CART or CAR-T therapy, or just CARS for short. Uh, this is a new approach where we, we actually collect T cells from the patient 
using apheresis, the same process that we collect blood cells for donation um, for, uh, for blood banks. Um, but once the cells are collected, we purify the T cells and then they're, they're sent to a special lab that genetically modifies them and turns them into specialized T cells that recognize the lymphoblasts, particularly the B lymphoblasts. We don't yet have a standard T cell ALL uh, CAR-T approach, but for B lymphoblast-directed uh, therapy, um, CAR-T cells can be exquisitely effective. Um, at recognizing uh, the, the B cells, again, by recognition of CD19, which is a protein on their surface. And these T cells actually don't need any additional antibody. They just recognize CD19 and start attacking those cells. Um, they have a very high rate of uh, uh, patients going into remission with no measurable residual disease. And in some cases, uh, patients who have had a relapse after multiple lines of therapy or even after a bone marrow transplant can get durable remissions uh, without subsequent therapy with CAR T-cell therapy. It's a very exciting treatment. And the persistence of these therapies, even after the treatment is done, is one of the most exciting parts of this. We, we've been able to measure CAR t uh, products we've administered to patients more than 10 years later in some cases, which is why we call these cells a living drug. Uh, the, the cells come from the patient, are trained to kill cancer cells, and then stay and do that job potentially for years later. Now, as you might imagine, it's not like a magic wand where just poof, we can make the leukemia go away with no side effects. Um, it can be very toxic therapy, even though, um, again, it generally does not require much in the way of chemotherapy. And there's potential for really serious side effects of CAR-T therapy. So it's not for everyone. Um, it's also associated with very profound immune suppression, which is really common to all treatments for ALL. So we have to use this care very carefully in terms of treatment, but it's been a very exciting change in how we approach patients, particularly those with relapsed or refractory disease. Um, and we're hoping to develop uh, treatments for T-cell ALL, but right now that's still just a, an investigational approach. And lastly, I want to come back to BCR-ABLE, or Philadelphia chromosome positive disease, which I, I kind of alluded to before. And I'll just point out that about a third of patients who have the Philadelphia chromosome, a third of patients with ALL will have the Philadelphia chromosome. And it used to be that we really feared this because they had worse outcome when treated with chemotherapy. About 20 years ago, the development of drugs that inhibited the enzyme that is made by the Philadelphia chromosome, which is called BCR-ABLE tyrosine kinase, um, were developed and brought into clinical therapy, and that has really transformed the treatment of patients with Philadelphia chromosome positive ALL. And now their outcome is actually, if not as good as patients who don't have this mutation, it, it may even be better. Um, and we used to always use bone marrow transplants for the, these patients, um, even if they've never had a relapse. We're, we're doing that less now, and there are many patients who are treated without transplant at all. Um, so it's very exciting to see that we can combine BCR-ABLE inhibitors with chemotherapy and a very promising new approach that um, is coming into therapies, combining some of these newer drugs, such as blinitumumab, with drugs that target the Philadelphia chromosome. And again, that's very early, and, and perhaps Dr. Duvall is going to talk about that in his talk. Um, but this is a really exciting area of development. In the last few minutes that I have, I'm just going to talk about telehealth or telemedicine appointments. And obviously, the, the concept of telehealth is something that we've had the technology to do for many years, but, but using it commonly was really not done until the COVID-19 pandemic. And that, that really has opened up, you know, many more opportunities to employ telehealth. And that has changed uh, uh, the ability to get in touch with your oncology team 
Uh, it's really transformed my practice and certainly many other oncologists. I, th I think there's probably no one in the audience who hasn't used telemedicine at this point, so this should be a familiar topic to people. Uh, obviously, early in the pandemic when people were on lockdown and really weren't instructed to go out of their house, we had to use telehealth to bring people to the physician if there was a worry that going places would increase the risk of getting COVID-19. Um, and at that time, there wasn't universal testing or screening, and, and we were still figuring out how to make treatment safe for patients and also minimize the risk to physicians. So if they got exposed to COVID-19 and they had to quarantine, they could still see their patients. So we used a lot of telehealth then for that reason. And I think over time, we saw that actually coming to the doctor's office was a relatively low risk uh, 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 activity and not something we needed to worry our patients about. Um, so the need for telehealth changed at that point. And now I think the main place that we're employing it is in patients who either have uh, obstacles to getting in to see the physician, such as a long distance to travel or difficulty with kind of navigating uh, in the city if, if their physician is in the city and they're from the country, um, or just the challenges of, of people who, you know, may have limited mobility and it's, it's hard for them to get in and see the doctor and they may have had, um, you know, trouble getting in regularly to get their care, or they might have a visit that really just needs information that's presented verbally rather than a physical exam follow-up from a bone marrow biopsy, results from an imaging study, et cetera. And, and telehealth has really transformed that. Um, one thing on the, on the physician's end that I really like is, is, is sort of feeling like I'm doing a house call, almost like a country doctor might do. Um, I can see the patient in their own home environment. I almost get a little bit of insight into their life at home. And I can think of one patient of mine whose husband had had a major stroke for whom she's the primary caregiver, and I never would have been able to meet her husband who was bedbound otherwise. So I, I get real insight into my patient's lives through uh, telehealth, and that's one thing I like about it. Um, obviously, there are things we can't do through telehealth if you have physical complaints that we need, a stethoscope or laying on our hands to do. So it's not perfect for all visits, but it really has changed the way we approach many problems. And I, I don't think it's a substitute for coming in and seeing the physician, but it's really something that I think is important and I hope continues long past the, you know, the acute stages of the COVID-19 pandemic, which I hope are really quieting down. So with that, I'm going to conclude my, my uh, discussion, and I'll pass the, uh, the microphone on to my uh, uh, other members of this panel. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pearl. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful, just a wonderful introduction setting the stage for today's program and so much information that you've provided to everyone. So thank you so much. Um, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, definitely. Um, and our next speaker um, is um, Dr. Adam Duval. And Dr. Duval is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Oncology, Young Adult Cancer Program, UChicago Medicine. And Dr. Duval will be addressing targeted therapy and clinical trial updates, how research contributes to your treatment options, managing complications and side effects, quality of life concerns, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Duval. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, for your kind introduction, and also to Dr. Pearl for such a great overview, because it really leads into what I'd like to talk about next, which is, you know, the targeted therapeutic options that Dr. Pearl mentioned and, and how they're kind of being used in our clinical trials and, and hopefully what we'll be looking for in the future. So, you know, as, um, as somebody who, you know, focuses on um, treating both young adults and, and older patients with ALL, there really is a, a little bit of a divide between the two. And I just want to make sure when I 
that I clarify that when I say older adults, I do not mean old adults. I mean um, necessarily not the, the younger patients who are usually we define as 40 years old or, or less. Because, you know, we do have different kind of treatment algorithms and, and treatment approaches to those different populations, to, to the different patients. Um, because our bodies do handle different types of therapy differently as we age and as, as our bodies change. So I'll be trying to address uh, some of these options in, in those two different groups. Uh, first, you know, with the great introduction about the different types of acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL, you know, the, the real big major divide would be, be between B cell and T cell. And for better or worse, you know, we have a lot more options for B cell that's targeted to the specific um, biology of the B cell disease than we do T cell. So, um, unfortunately, you know, we'll be talking mainly about those, um, you know, advances as opposed to T cell disease. And within B cell, as, as Dr. Pearl mentioned, you know, there really are, I would almost think of as, as three subdivides, but really in, in from a, you know, FDA approval standpoint right now, we're kind of at two subdivides and, and really in the, in the investigational phase for the others. So that would be, you know, Philadelphia chromosome or pH negative ALL, which is, you know, what Dr. Pearl talked about earlier, um, pH positive ALL or something that's not associated with the BCR able gene translocation, but um, is, is, Acts similarly to it, and we call that pH-like ALL. It's kind of self-explanatory almost. So, you know, the two major drugs that, that Dr. Pearl mentioned already, inotuzumab and blinitumumab, really are huge major developments in the treatment of B-cell ALL. Um, and right now, you know, they were, they're approved and they've been studied in, in what we would call relapsed or refractory disease. So B-cell ALL that has either... Um, uh, stopped responding to chemotherapy or initially responded to chemotherapy and now has come back. So these were studied in those situations to start off with, and they seem to be very effective in those situations, especially um, when compared to standard chemotherapy um, that was really all we had to use before. But now what we're trying to look at is, you know, can we use that therapy more in the frontline setting or earlier in therapy than in the, the later stages, which it's already been studied in and approved for at this point. So for um, inotuzumab, which is, again, that targeted agent, which is a kind of like chemotherapy, but it binds to leukemia itself and has less, um, you know, systemic, you know, side effects, although there, there are, it's not without side effects. Um, the current clinical trials, you know, especially um, in younger patients, are really looking at combining this therapy with chemotherapy to improve outcomes in general, to prevent the need um, for transplant, um, which Dr. Pearl already mentioned, we're, you know, we're getting away from more and more, which is good for patients to, to not have to go through that procedure, um, but also to improve our outcomes. And hopefully, you know, using it in combination with chemo that we already know works quite well, we'll, we'll see more cures and, and less side effects in the long-term setting. In addition, you know, if there were to be, uh, in children, blinitumumab is, is being looked at in, um, you know, earlier phase trials, but it's, it's also being moved into um, earlier phase trials for young adults as well. So if patients were to have, you know, low levels of disease that really, honestly, you know, probably 10, 15 years ago weren't even able to be detect detected by our science, but now we've improved and can find this low level, level of disease, which is called MRD or minimal residual or measurable residual disease, for those patients who have that little bit of uh, leukemia left over that's microscopic, you know, would giving this 
um, this uh, antibody therapy that Dr. Pearl already described earlier lead to less toxicity and, and on higher rates of cure. That's what we're using in, in some of our younger population as well. In the older population, again, this is an old, um, this is just an older population. It's, it's really exciting because before chemotherapy was, you know, difficult to give because it can be very toxic and, and it also, um, it, it wasn't as effective as it was in some of our younger patients. Um, and so what we're, the field is moving towards and what the new clinical trials are really looking at, you know, some combine these agents with chemotherapy, but some are also actually looking at chemotherapy-free treatment, which, you know, sounds great, but again, these, these aren't without side effects, so it's not, not to, to paint a rosy picture. But the idea of using inotuzumab up front and then combining it with lenitumumab or with other chemotherapy is really where the field is moving um, in the future. And that's hopefully going to improve outcomes in our older patients and also reduce, reduce the toxicity that we see with these chemotherapeutic approaches. For pH-positive ALL, there, as, as Dr. Pearl mentioned, there's really some exciting um, things that are coming out. So, the you know, I actually trained with the, the person who um, de helped develop the first targeted therapy for BCR able called Imatinib. And now we're on, you know, our third and fourth generation of these um, TKIs or tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So we now have lots of other IBs, you know, Dasatinib, Nilotinib, Lusutinib, um, Panatinib, and, and now Asiminib as well. So what we're looking at in, in these settings for younger patients, um, we're combining, again, these agents with chemotherapy to see if we can improve outcomes and hopefully eliminate the need for bone marrow transplant in these patients. And for older patients, combining some of these um, newer TKIs, especially things like second generation and third generation, like dasatinib and panatinib and, the, and potentially asiminib in the future, um, with these novel agents like inotuzumab and blinatumumab for, again, to develop approaches that can be almost, you know, quote-unquote chemotherapy-free, not without side effects, but still um, hopefully maximizing our, our ability to cure this disease while minimizing the toxic effects of our therapy. There are also new targeted therapies for that pH like. You know, it's different than the BCR able translocation, but some of our agents that we use for pH positive ALL could be used in this setting. But then there's also other agents, things like ruxolitinib or other inhibitors that target different pathways within the leukemia itself that are able to combine with chemotherapy or other agents to help improve um, the treatment in, in these groups. Those are all very investigational at this point, and so it would be really in clinical trials that you would be able to access these therapies, and, and that really are, you know, being tested, so we don't know if they are better than what our standard approach is, but we're hopeful that they will be, and, and you know, in the next 10 years, we should know much more about it. Finally, the last targeted agent would be CAR T-cell therapies. You know, there are two FDA-approved options, but there are many, many other CAR T-cell therapies that are in development with the goal of minimizing the toxicity that Dr. Pearl already mentioned, while maximizing the ability to, um, uh, to get a durable, long-term disease control. And, you know, quote, unquote, a cure is what we're really looking for. Now, with the FDA-approved therapies and, and with what we have for CAR T-cells currently, you know, we, we see long-term remissions. You know, Dr. Pearl already mentioned, we see them past 10 years even. But it's, it's impossible to say when we first treat people if, if those patients are going to have that long-term remission or not. 
So it's difficult for people to say that, you know, CAR T cell therapy can, can result in a long-term disease control or cure for the rest of their lives. And if we're talking about 20 or 30-year-olds, you know, we're talking about hopefully, you know, 20, 30, 40 more years, and we just haven't had that therapy around long enough to know if that's the case or not. And so we still are reliant on undergoing bone marrow transplants in a lot of these patients. And so to develop, you know, longer-term models or, or various other ways to, to manipulate the CAR T-cells to get um, equivalent outcomes as the bone marrow transplants is where the field is moving now. And we do have, you know, uh, targeted agents that specifically look at, you know, what's called CD19, which is basically something that's stuck on the outside of the leukemia cells. And that's what our CAR T-cells that are approved um, uh, a target. But unfortunately, you know, the, the leukemia is pretty smart. It can lose that target, and if that's the case, the, the CAR T-cells become less effective. So in addition to making the CAR T-cells that target CD19 more efficient and longer-lasting and, and less toxic, a lot of work is going into other targets. You know, if they were to lose, if the leukemia cells were to lose the targets that we have available to us, you know, what can we go to next? So similar to what inotuzumab targets, uh, the CAR T cells are being developed to look at the protein called CD22, which is what inotuzumab targets, like I mentioned. It's also just something stuck on the outside of the leukemia cells, but also other things that might be able to be targetable um, on the B cell leukemias and maybe even T cell leukemias too. For T cell leukemias, unfortunately, there are fewer targeted options. Um, there are some things that, you know, are used in acute myeloid leukemias and other types of specific inhibitors that I won't really talk about too much, but do show some promise in T-cell disease. And there will be clinical trials coming out in the next year or two looking for younger adults, um, combining these uh, therapies with chemotherapy in the upfront setting. And there already are trials and other things available for, for looking at these therapies and, you know, if patients were, again, to become relapsed or refractory. Or for older adults, there are trials that have shown that these can be combined with chemotherapy successfully. And the next step is to see which is better. And so some trials will be coming out looking at kind of our standard chemotherapy approaches or combining some of these agents with chemotherapy to see, you know, which is more effective and which is less toxic. And that really gets to the, the next um, kind of topic of discussion, which is, you know, how research contributes to your treatment options. As Dr. Pearl mentioned, for, for better or worse, acute lymphoblastic leukemia is a rare disease, which is good, but it makes it difficult to, to find places to, to get the kind of um, whole um, person approach that is really necessary for this for treatment of this disease. And it usually requires going to a large academic center or a large hospital that might not be, you know, convenient for every person that, you know, lives in the United States. Um, and so, uh, but with that, you know, our goal is to really work together as a whole country and as a, as a really a whole um, community of medical providers who treat this disease. And ideally, every single patient would be treated on a clinical trial. Um, you know, the children's um, group, it's called the Children's Oncology Group, they're really one of the reasons why, you know, everybody has done so much better with this disease, and, and it's because of the different combinations of chemotherapy. And that's really because every child is, is attempted to be treated on a clinical trial just so that they can get appropriate care, but also so that we can advance our care as rapidly as possible so that the next people who come along, we can already know what would be better than our current standard of care, what we usually do for people. And so ideally in this disease that is, you know, very small and, and relatively rare, you know, having every person treated on a clinical trial will, one, allow us to give the right therapy to every person that we, you know, it's the best of our knowledge, but it'll also help 
the community and help future um, generations hopefully benefit from the treatment that patients already need to receive, um, but uh, we can learn more about to see if we can better it for the next people that we, are, we encounter. And, you know, that helps us to determine which agents are used and in what combination. Should they be used earlier in therapy? Should they be used later in therapy? Or, you know, is, is chemotherapy the really the right option? And, and, you know, these targeted therapies are great in the relapse setting, but maybe they shouldn't be used up front. It, it answers all of those questions without the research, without the clinical trials that we can't answer. And now something that is, you know, really becoming, you know, our science is a little bit behind in, but is becoming more and more important is um, also examining quality of life within these clinical trials. So, you know, these studies are now being paired with quality of life measures and patient reported outcome measures. So asking you patients how you're feeling, what you're experiencing, and trying to focus these clinical trials not just on the science about, you know, helping people live longer, but also helping people live better. We're hopefully moving to a place that will focus really on those two things, help patients, help everybody live longer or live better. And if we're not accomplishing those two things, or one of those two things at least, with our drugs, then, you know, we should be looking for something else. And, you know, that kind of gets into the quality of life concerns and, and side effects and complications that, you know, are kind of the next on the, on the topic. And really, it's, you know, enrolling in these clinical trials, helping us learn, you know, what patients are experiencing so that we can hopefully better our treatment. But also, since this is such a complex disease that really requires intensive therapy, the need for a multidisciplinary team, you know, the need for a team that includes nurses, social works, mental health providers, um, and, you know, obviously physicians, but uh, really everybody um, from from the top down is, is really um, necessary to be able to help patients and their families get through this disease and this therapy. You know, specifically advocating for um, yourself or for your family members, if you are having side effects, getting involved, you know, specialized teams like um, palliative care teams, which can really focus on symptoms and symptom management. But also, you know, there are lots of, um, you know, uh, mental health, uh, you know, conditions that can be exacerbated or even be caused by having the diagnosis of this cancer and undergoing the significant therapy and life disruptions that go along with it. So advocating for this where it is, you know, difficult to, to find, but incredibly important and something that, you know, we as doctors don't always ask about and it's not always um, on the top of our mind but is equally important no matter what we, what we treat. And, you know, that, that does get to find kind of the, the telehealth and telemedicine. As, as Dr. Pearl mentioned, you know, there's lots more access. So hopefully for mental health providers and things like that, there would be more access for patients to be able to get that, you know, in their home and not have to worry about searching elsewhere and, and, and uh, enduring that stigma and that difficulty in finding it. But by all means, especially in the U.S., we, we really need more of that and more access. So that is still a huge problem. But, you know, as far as preparing for telehealth visits, you know, this is a disease that is, is, is difficult to treat in that it requires a, a specialized team. So I would say with this one, as opposed to other cancers or other, you know, especially blood cancers, most of the time you're going to be coming in more often than, than not, and that's because of the treatment involved, and that's because of the need to have the specialized team. But when you're, when you're able to, um, you know, it is a great way to be able to avoid, you know, coming into the city, as you know, being in Chicago, that's obviously a huge problem for us, um, but also accessing a, a team that, you know, might not, be, uh, might not be close to you. So, you know, what I recommend to all of my patients, especially if it's the first time accessing the system, is to test the technology if you can. 
Um, try to have everyone you want to be listening, either on a speakerphone call and have them muted just so that they can listen. Um, some technology allows you to um, uh, kind of um, video conference in other, other family members from across the country, and that can be really valuable. Um, or, uh, you know, have them visit for that time when you know that appointment's going to happen. I think that's a, that's a huge benefit of these um, telemedicine uh, calls and, and uh, appointments. But then also know that technology is not perfect, so um, I would just recommend, you know, being patient. It's equally difficult for us as providers as it is for patients sometimes with these uh, the technology that just doesn't work. But you really want to maximize your time on that on that visit. So I recommend this to all the patients. You know, most of the time the treatment for these for ALL starts in the hospital. But even in the hospital, you're not seeing doctors all the time. You know, you see us once or twice, depending on how you're doing. And so having a pad of paper basically in your pocket with a pen and writing down those questions that when you think of them, you're able to remember later on. I mean, even the treatment with chemotherapy, we know there is something that's real. It's called chemo brain, and it leads to a lot of forgetfulness and, and kind of short-term memory difficulties. So having that crutch there or having a note um, tab in your phone, something like that, where these questions come up, you know that you'll have them ready for later. And it gives you a peace of mind, hopefully, that you aren't missing something, that you're asking all the questions that you really want to. You know, the the other thing that we have is, you know, there's per, there, there's more and more access to your medical chart, medical records, both open notes and also test results and, um, you know, uh, imaging results and things like that. And I think that's wonderful. We should be more transparent in our, our medical system in general. But I also think it's it could be very concerning and quite um, dangerous, too, especially if you're following the day-to-day -day trends of different blood counts, which can be really concerning or anxiety-provoking. Um, and, you know, and sometimes they change in, in concerning ways that really are actually normal for the treatment that, that people undergo for ALL. But also, there, I've had, you know, unfortunate things where you have a scheduled time to discuss the results of some study with your, your physician, but the, the result is automatically released beforehand. And so without having the ability to talk about it with your doctor before you see the result, that can be really distressing. And that's, that's something that, you know, is a problem that's becoming uh, more uh, common with the, with the change in technology and the kind of instant access that everybody has. So I would caution, you know, the, the limit and, the, and, you know, attempting to, to um, you know, really address, you know, specific things um, with the open notes and, and, not, and, and um, results and not necessarily following everything on a day-to-day -day basis because it can be quite, um, quite difficult and actually make things, you know, much more worse as far as, you know, anxiety and other levels, um, while also, you know, providing some insight into what's going on. So, uh, and I'm happy to answer questions about all of that. I think it's a very complex subject, and obviously there's not a right um, one-size-fits-all answer for that. So with that, though, I'll, I'll pause and, 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 you know, give it back to Dr. Messner, and thank you all for your time, and I'm happy to take further questions, you know, once we get to that point. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Duval. That was outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Lots of wonderful content. Thank you. Um, and um, our next speaker is Ms. Carrie Callas, and um, she's Director of Programs, Research, Grants, Leukemia Research Foundation, and is a partner organization on today's program. And she'll be describing for you um, the Leukemia Research Foundation's free services and programs. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Callas. 
Thank you so much, Carolyn, for that introduction, and thank you to Cancer Care for hosting this important program and for inviting the Leukemia Research Foundation to be a part of it. Um, I'm just going to do a very brief overview um, for all of you on the phone about the foundation and our patient and family support services, which many may be very beneficial to you all on this call. Um, the Leukemia Research Foundation's mission is to conquer all blood cancers, and we do this by funding innovative research to find new treatments and cures. Uh, the foundation has raised over $80 million in support of its mission and has funded research grants to over 600 new investigators worldwide to help them advance their research. During this current grant cycle that we're in right now, three of our research projects are focused on ALL specifically. Um, in addition to funding research, the foundation supports patients and families by providing educational programs with top hematology oncology experts, much like the two that you just heard. Um, these include our annual new and emerging treatments conference in the fall and our town hall meeting in the winter, which is an open forum for patients to ask questions. Um, both programs, as well as our virtual program offerings on a variety of topics, include information on ALL specifically. We also offer peer support programs, including a leukemia online support community and a one-on-one -on -one mentoring program for patients and caregivers through a partnership with Immerman Angels. Um, and as you all know, ongoing treatments and disease management can certainly take a toll on a family financially. So we do offer a need-based patient grant program available to eligible patients in Illinois. And for those not in Illinois, we have information about other financial assistance resources. Um, we recently added new disease content, and there's a whole section on ALL on our website, as well as informational resources on being newly diagnosed and several treatment-related topics. Um, so to learn more and to see those resources, um, please visit our website, allbloodcancers.org. For those of you following the live stream, it's up on your screen. Um, there you can sign up for our email list so you can be informed of upcoming programs. Um, we have one for young adults with, um, with cancer, with blood cancers, leukemia, um, coming up here on May 23rd that may be of interest to some of you on this call. Um, so thank you for the opportunity to share about the foundation, and I will turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Callis. That was really wonderful, actually, and um, a wonderful resource for all of you. So some of you already are utilizing this resource, but for those of you who aren't, so at the end of today's program, you'll all be getting, well, actually, tomorrow you'll be getting, actually, Monday, sorry, Monday you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation. And in that evaluation, there's an evaluation of the program that we appreciate you're filling out. But there also will be any resource we mentioned on today's program, any website, any 800 numbers, anything like that, we'll give that to you so you'll have it in addition. So it's both a combination of a, an evaluation but also some additional resources that you can keep really available to you to get more information. Thank you so much, Ms. Callis. That was really wonderful. And now I'm just going to say a few words about Cancer Care. Um, Cancer Care is a national organization. Um, we provide free programs and services to people in the United States. And for our participants from other countries, um, you can visit our website, post your question, and we'll be happy, our oncology social workers will be happy to help you to get the resources that you need or the help you need. Um, uh, we um, 
people often call our hope line, um, and usually when they call that number, um, they speak with an oncology social worker. We have about 45 of them, and the oncology social worker will address their concern and then go over with them all of the different services. Um, we offer support to people. Um, we offer online support groups. Um, we offer also practical financial and co-payment assistance, which is very, very helpful um, to many of you. Um, and there are many other organizations that offer, of course, um, financial and co-payment assistance as well. So we actually make you aware of all the resources out there for you so you can take advantage of them as well. Um, we also um, offer a number of these programs, about 75 of them per year, some on specific types of cancer or hematologic cancers like today's program, and some of them on specific topics um, that uh, might be of interest to you as well. And you can access them from our website. And we also have a number of publications. And lastly, we do have a, a, um, a, um, a, a program that assists people um, with, um, who have pets, uh, either dogs or cats, who they really have difficulty caring for, either have difficulty caring for them um, because they're not feeling well, they can't take their dog out for a walk, or they aren't able to afford the cost of food for their pet. Um, and so we do have um, um, an assistance program for them, and that's, that's been a wonderful program. And we also have a case management program. So if we don't offer a service that you need, um, our case management staff will virtually take you to a resource and work with you until you have your need met. So sometimes it has to do with your own food and security needs, or sometimes it has to do with housing or um, your cost of your rent or mortgage or utilities, those kinds of things. We will help you to resolve those issues. And now I'm going to ask Grace to bring all of our speakers on board. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Grace? Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And we have a question for one of our online participants, um, and this will be for Dr. Pearl. Do you treat patients with multimyeloma and ALL in the same way? Let me just make sure I understand the question correctly. Um, we do have patients who have both a diagnosis of myeloma and a diagnosis of ALL. Um, and, and that's very specialized because we need to balance these two diseases, which can both be active at the same time. Um, so in, if, if, this is the, if the question relates to patients with both diagnoses, uh, some of the medications are shared in terms of agents active against each. For example, we'll use corticosteroids like dexamethasone for both myeloma and for ALL. But it's, it's harder in that setting to, you know, come up with a regimen that's optimally effective against both agents without a little bit of mixing and matching. So this is certainly an area where you want to get expertise, um, you know, from both the myeloma standpoint and also the ALL standpoint. And, and often that, that may not be the same physician at a, at a center because that may be specialized. There are some treatments that are, you know, overlapping in terms of activity there, though, including... Uh, options for for uh, you know CAR T therapy. We have had patients get CD19 directed CAR Ts that did show activity against um, both tumors. Um, but but even in that setting, uh, the the CAR T therapies are really you know directed in different areas. Um, bone marrow transplantation is something that can be effective for both treatments. And and again, that's rarely used for 
uh, myeloma in terms of an allogeneic donor transplant, um, but sometimes that's relevant when a, a leukemia follows. Um, and then lastly, if the question is, is just, you know, in sequence, if you have controlled uh, myeloma and then develop ALL, that's probably the best setting in which to give optimal ALL therapy, which could be for a period of time during which the myeloma hopefully is quiescent and relatively lower uh, intensity therapy for myeloma could be added that doesn't add myelosuppression, meaning drops in blood counts during that treatment. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, a question um, for Dr. Duval, um, what do you recommend to build strength after treatment program, after treatment program? Are there exercises you cannot do even if you were doing them in the past? Thanks for the question. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, there's more and more evidence, especially in older patients, that trying to keep active during therapy um, is, is a great thing. So, Requesting, you know, referral to either exercise therapy programs if they're available near you or to physical therapy who kind of specializes in, you know, taking care of patients with cancer um, is, is a great thing. Afterwards, you know, it just so, is so dependent on kind of how, what therapy you receive and what side effects of therapy that you, you have. You know, there are um, lots of steroids that are given in treatment of ALL, which can lead to, you know, issues with bone health. And, um, and, you know, that is something that's important to follow up. So really it depends on kind of your individual, um, you know, tolerance and therapy, but it's certainly something that I encourage with all of my patients to remain active and to be as active as, as physically possible. But also if you are done with therapy, you know, having a, a referral or, or hopefully getting in contact or situated with a survivorship program to help monitor for late effects after therapy is done um, and also help kind of direct you to, to different resources to help with these kind of graduated exercise type programs or to help you make those decisions about what is, um, you know, individually right for yourself would probably be best in that situation. Excellent. Thank you. Um, uh, this question um, for Dr. Um, Pearl. I read that AL can be connected to exposure to radiation. Can you discuss this connection? Is there a connection? Uh, there is a connection, though I, I should preface that by stating it, that in the most, you know, the, the, the vast majority of patients, we, we want to know why the leukemia happened in the first place, and we don't find a good reason for it. Um, there, there have certainly been identified risk factors for acute leukemias, either AML or ALL, and they do include exposure to agents that damage DNA, so that includes prior chemotherapy agents. That includes uh, ionizing radiation, so radiation given to treat another cancer. Um, survivors of the, you know, the, the atom bomb attack on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in, in Japan in the 40s uh, had a higher incidence of ALL even years after that, that exposure. So we know that there is a link to those kinds of exposures, but the vast majority of people who develop ALL don't have that history. Um, in some cases, we'll find ALL that arises uh, with a family history for other leukemias, and it's very important to bring that up during your initial visit with the leukemia physician because sometimes we can find a predisposing gene that runs in the family, although, again, that's uncommon. Um, it's an important part of the history that we want to capture so that if we could uh, identify risk uh, in a family, we could potentially counsel people on whether they want to know about the presence or absence of that gene or if we were going to do bone marrow transplant and find a, a donor. 
Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Duval. I'm in remission now. It's been about two months, but I am concerned about recurrence. Um, what shall I do to monitor my um, ALL? Um, well, first, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that you're in remission. And really, anybody who's in remission, it's such a, I know it's such an anxiety-provoking thing to have the, the worry about it coming back or, or having something else change. So it really depends on individualized therapy. You know, what therapy did you receive? Did you undergo a bone marrow transplant? Did you, are you on, you know, the POMP maintenance that Dr. Pearl had talked about a long time ago? Did you receive any of the you know, novel agents that we have like CAR T-cell therapy um, or inotuzumab or blinitumumab. So I would be making sure to follow up, you know, with your specialized program that, that you know, is, is monitoring you because these things can change too. Um, but we have a lot of um, technology nowadays to be able to um, detect, you know, this MRD that I mentioned before, minimal residual disease to, to detect, um, you know, microscopic disease before there is an overt relapse. So just following up with, with your doctors as, as they recommend. And, you know, if they are, if there are bone marrow biopsies that are going to be done in, in um, or just blood work, either is reasonable depending on what therapy you've received. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a transition period. Once you're, I usually say for most patients, once they're in remission and they've, um, you know, and they've stopped therapy or they're off therapy, that first, you know, six months afterwards can be really difficult. And it's a time where you're not seeing your doctor as much. Um, and so it's, it's sometimes harder to, to emotionally, psycho-emotionally to kind of get through all of that time. And it's very real and it's very important. So asking for resources is if this is something that you're struggling with, I think is important. Um, but just making sure that you follow up with the visits um, after treatment are equally important as the on-treatment visits. Or if your, your physician has recommended a type of maintenance therapy, you know, ensuring um, trying to take those medications as they're prescribed to the, to the best of your ability. Or if there are significant side effects before stopping them or, you know, resorting to something else, um, to talk to your, your treatment team to, to see what else can be done or if there are modifications or, or really what else can be done to help um, mitigate those side effects or, or other options if they, if they can't be mitigated are, is really important. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. And uh, this will be the last question. This is for Dr. Pearl. Um, how are people selected for clinical trials, and does, is there an age at which one can't participate in clinical trials? Great question. That, that simple answer is no. There's no age above which we don't want to look at patients. There may even be specific trials targeting patients who are older. Um, but, but it's important to ask, and, and that's the first thing, is to show your interest in if there's a, something new that's, that's offered, I, I want to find out more information. You don't have to stick out your neck to say, like, I'll, I'll take it no matter what. Just hear the information, see whether it makes sense within your treatment, because, you know, often when we're looking at patients for trials, we have to look at a lot of different things. There may be something called an eligibility criterion that we have to meet, that you need a certain disease and perhaps a certain age group, but sometimes it's open, um, and have good, you know, organ function in terms of kidney function, liver function, et cetera, and that will vary from trial to trial. Or it might be a, a particular agent that requires a really specialized patient population, like the presence of a certain mutation in the leukemia. And if you have that mutation, then we very much want to study uh, your type of leukemia because we may have a particular drug for it that is targeted for that biology that associates with that mutation. But if you don't have a mutation, then, then we don't know that the drug would work and it might just cause side effects. 
So I, I can't say for all trials how exactly they're looked at. It often depends on the very trial. But the most important thing from the patient standpoint is to recognize that every drug that you take for every indication started with a trial. And so while not every drug that's being studied in a trial either winds up being approved or is found to be useful, safe, and effective, um, every medicine that is found to be safe and effective did come from a trial. And for a disease as important as ALL, if there's an option for clinical trials and there's a benefit to a new approach, you may see that benefit before anyone else. So it's a real it's a real incentive for patients to at least inquire about the participation in trials, see if it's the right answer for you. Um, and if it is and you think it's a good option, then then really look at the study hard, ask as many questions as you can to see whether this is the right treatment option for you. And and we really encourage your participation for all the reasons that Dr. Duval mentioned during his talk. Excellent. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. You've really been phenomenal. And I want to thank our participants really for asking such great questions as well. It's been a, you know, we've done um, this program before, but I have to say today's program was really outstanding in every way, um, both in terms of the presentations and also the dialogue between um, the, our speakers and those who asked questions it was really terrific. So I want to thank everyone. Now, I do want to acknowledge that there are many of you still in queue. We could easily go on for another hour, but we did say this would be a one-hour program. So I do want to actually acknowledge those who have not asked a question or even for those who have. So um, there are actually three buckets of people here. Someone who asked a question, someone who has a question that they wanted to ask but don't have a chance to ask it here, and someone who has a question that they're thinking they'd like to ask. For all of you, um, I strongly recommend that you take the information you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team. Even if you asked a question today and got an answer, we want you to have you ask your team who know you the best. They have all the information about you, and they can best, of course, um, um, help you address the, the concern or question you have. And if, if you've, hopefully you've learned from today's question that all of your questions are important and terrific and you can ask them as often as you need to until you have an answer that you understand and that, and that really helps you. So that's very important. Being informed, participating in a program like this suggests that you're a group of informed consumers. You want to know about your, your ALL, about you know, what's going on as much as you can. You want to learn as much as you can about things. That's a very important thing. Um, knowledge is, of course, great power for everybody on the call. Also, um, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with ALL or any type of cancer. I want you to now know that you're part of a community of support, and we're all here to help you. Um, there are many resources out there for you. You'll be getting, of course, you have both the Resource of Leukemia Research Foundation and Cancer Care, but we will be sending in the SurveyMonkey many other organizations that we want you to have um, access to as well, um, as well as Copay Foundations to help you with some of those um, financial issues that you may be confronting. Um, I very much want to thank all of you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.